The reading today is Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 39 to 55. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to, to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Mm. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. But, this, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remember to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Amen. Thank you, Michael. Well, at pretty much every turn, as you read these stories, you find... Um, miracles. You find supernatural things happening. And there's really no way around it during this time of season. You see quite clearly the miraculous. You see that the God we serve is big and He's great and beyond our understanding and mysterious in many ways. Um, though also close and imminent as He came to dwell with us. But today it's common to hear folks say things like, Well, I believe that Jesus was a good teacher or that Jesus was a revolutionary but maybe not the Son of God. Well, in order to argue that or to believe that, you really have to gut the Christmas story of a great deal of its most significant parts. Uh, take even the first few verses of our passage today, which Kathy uh, shared with the children and which Mike just read for us. Um, if you were to go to the part of the story just before we, we heard right there um, what we're reading, you would find that Elizabeth, uh, her husband, his name was Zechariah, uh, he was a priest. And we read in verses 8 through 23 uh, the story of how the angel Gabriel, and I read this earlier in the service, how the angel Gabriel appeared to him while he was in the temple uh, offering incense, burning incense, and uh, doing his priestly duties. The Lord appeared, the, the angel appeared to him with a message from the Lord. People are outside um, gathered in prayer. So once again, a miraculous thing happening here. And then what happens to Zacharias on this day when he's, he's doing this, this big, big thing, uh, which most priests may have gone into the holy place once in their lifetime. There were thousands of priests in Israel, and it would not have been a common thing for a priest to go before the Lord in this way. So this was a big day for Zechariah. A big, big day. And he goes in, the lot's cast, it's him, and he goes before the Lord. And this angel appears on this big day, and he's shocked. And what happens? Right? The angel says, uh, your, your wife Elizabeth in her old age will conceive a baby. Again, a miracle. 
which will come to be known as John the Baptist, and that baby will have the Holy Spirit even before birth, in the womb, a miracle, right? He'll become mighty and turn many hearts in Israel back to God, a miracle. Wow, what a message to get on this big day, right? Um, you're in there and uh, already probably nervous is, is all get out and uh, here comes this angel, right? So a big day, but what happens with Zacharias? He doesn't believe him. He doubts in his heart, right? And the angel makes him mute until the time when the baby is born. So here in this story you have prayers being answered, prophecies being fulfilled, angels appearing and speaking and making people mute. Um, miracles, miracles, miracles. Right after this you have an angel appearing to who? Mary, right? The mother of Jesus. Declaring that she's going to conceive by the Holy Spirit and give birth to a son. And it's going to be a virgin birth. Mary is a virgin. The Holy Spirit comes upon her in power and does this miraculous thing which is hard for us to grasp. And all of these, all the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies going back to the prophets of Samuel and, uh, and Isaiah and even all the way back to Genesis even. So more miracles upon miracles upon miracles. And then here in our passage, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and this baby leaps in her womb, right? When Jesus, when, the, when Mary walks in and the baby hears Mary's voice, somehow he knows, right? So everywhere you turn in this story, there are miracles. Well, Mary, as she enters Elizabeth's house, I'm not going to repeat the whole story as you've, as you've heard it already, but Mary enters in and, right, and, and Elizabeth says, you know, who am I that the, the Lord's, that the mother of my Lord would visit me? And Mary goes into um, this prayer. She says these amazing words. And uh, I think that this, these words right here in Mary's prayer also reveal to us another miracle of Christmas. And that is, um, in those first words, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. So this prayer or this song that has become the Magnificat, I'm going to try and unpack it just a little bit for us and show us how this really, this prayer of Mary, can be your prayer. And that this can be a miracle for all of us um, this Christmas season. And not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. But this song has become, this, this prayer of Mary's has become known as the Magnificat. No doubt you've maybe heard that word before, a Mary's song. Um, it's called the Magnificat. Oftentimes, uh, what, what you see is in ancient history, or in like medieval times, they would take the first word or the first phrase in a text or a song. Um, I think it's called the insipit is what they call that first phrase. And they would name the work after that very first phrase. So... Hark the herald angels sing, a famous hymn. Well, that's the first line of the song, right? Or little town of Bethlehem. Well, that's the first line of the song. Or joy to the world. That's the first line of the song. And same with Mary's song here, or her prayer, the Magnificat. In the old Latin, Magnificat is the first word in her prayer. And it means magnify or magnifies. So, <clears throat> this is a very famous prayer, and there's songs that have been written after it. But I think, as I've thought about this a great deal, as I've, as I've looked at this prayer, I really think that Mary's response here to what God has done in her life is a miracle. Not only are the ideas that she would somehow conceive a baby from God, right, as a virgin, and that God would come, become a man, those are unfathomable, Miracles in and of themselves. But Mary was born in a profoundly 
religious culture that would have shunned her as a result of this out-of-wedlock pregnancy. So all through this is miracles that she responds the way she does. Mary's pregnancy would have no doubt been found out by many. Word would have gotten around. And uh, maybe this is why Elizabeth was went into uh, seclusion herself is because it was sort of bizarre that she was pregnant in her old age or who knows exactly, maybe she was afraid of miscarriage or, or what, we're not real sure but Mary, no doubt, would have been afraid or maybe concerned about this, this message in some way deep down word would have gotten around and they would have known that she and Joseph were not married yet right, and yet she was pregnant and in a religious culture especially like Israel, in a very religious culture the shame of sin or perceived sin could be enormous. Absolutely enormous. I've been going through, to give you a sense of this, I've been, I'm going to share a little something I read with you this, uh, I read this week um, from a book by, uh, by Lynn Wilder called Unveiling Grace. Um, it's a, it chronicles her family's uh, exodus or move out of the, of the Mormon church. And about halfway through the book, she tells the story of a teenage girl who became pregnant in her ward in Utah, which I guess a ward is roughly the equivalent of, of kind of what we think of a church. She writes this, she was so ashamed because fornication was a gargantuan sin in Mormon culture, she hung herself in her parents' barn. Pain so consumed the girl's mother that she quit taking care of her diabetes. Depression handed her a signed death warrant. I watched helplessly as she lost her sight. And she lost a leg. And finally her life. She asked me on her deathbed to make sure that her son graduated from high school. This is a shameful thing in that kind of culture. Mary lived in a culture that would have maybe been similar in some respects. Where the shame of such a thing would have been, or the potential shame, would have been enormous. In our natural selves, apart from the grace of God, all of us maybe would respond negatively to such news. Given the context and the circumstances of the time, it would have been difficult, at least, to say, uh, to receive news like this. And we see that even in the story of the priest Zacharias, right? The fact that this godly man who was ministering on behalf of the people of Israel, going right into the very presence of God. Even a man such as Zechariah, he's contrasted with Mary here because what does Zechariah do? Right? He doubts. He gets this unbelievable news. And we see in this story how difficult it would have been, maybe, even though it's good news and exciting news, would have been difficult news to really believe because it involved so many miraculous and supernatural elements, right? His wife, Elizabeth Zacharias, his wife, it's pointed out, I don't think it's coincidence that she says it in verse 45. She points out the sting, right, of not, of her husband's doubt. If you read in verse 45, if you have your Bible open there, it says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Right? Maybe she was well aware that her husband had struggled in this area and how difficult it was to believe. That a young woman in her position would respond to God again, I want to emphasize this way, is a miracle. That anyone would respond, really, not just Mary, or not just Elizabeth or Zechariah, that anyone would respond rightly to the story of the Christ child is nothing short of miraculous. God 
became a man. I mean, think about that. In a lot of ways, it's ludicrous. The idea. If you have a, a big view of God, and God is the maker of all things, and that he would become a babe the size of a little grain of rice, and grow and mature in his mother's womb and be born, it's mind-boggling. And even ludicrous. To believe that sort of thing is hard. Now, not part, not part man. God, Jesus wasn't kind of half man or, or like some superhuman. or He wasn't a man who became God or, or even a God who had a human shell for a short time. God became fully human. And a lot of, if you look back in ch- church history... Um, you don't have to be an expert in church history. Just take my word for it. Go back and read some of the early things that happened in church history. A lot of the things that became known as heresy or things that were considered by the church to be false doctrine were a result of folks trying to explain the mystery of the incarnation. Trying to explain these mysteries that we're celebrating this time of year at Advent. They were a result of people trying to understand what was going on here. The reality is the mystery of the incarnation of God's taking on flesh can't be explained. It's a mystery. It's a miracle. It's filled with paradox in many ways. So we don't have to abandon, though, rationality to believe it. But it is something that's filled with mystery and uncertainty. It's hard to really get our minds around. Jesus, we believe, and it's important to state this because you can't take it for granted these days, but Jesus, we believe, as all Christians really believe, was fully God and fully man all at the same time. Right? Get your mind around that. Right? That's a tough one. Fully God, 100% God, 100% man at the exact same time. The Nicene Creed, which is one of the pillars of solid biblical, traditional Christianity, which this this church qualifies and fits under that banner. Christian faith, it, it says this right here about the Christian faith that we hold to. Specifically of Jesus, it says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, Through Him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation He he came down from heaven. And by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and His kingdom will have no end. Amen. But that's a, a mouthful, right? That's, that's hard stuff to get your mind around. Many hear these words that the church has clung to for thousands of years. The Nicene Creed was written in the 4th century. This goes a long way back. Many hear those words and our minds tell us that's foolishness, right? How can that be? But we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we embrace the miracle of Emmanuel, right? We say that this is the power of God, right? And this is the Christmas story. Again, around every corner, paradox and mystery, miracles. 
And another aspect, which we really see clearly in Mary's prayer, and I'm going to go into this more in just a minute, of all these Christmas mysteries is the fact that God came with no trumpet. Have you thought about that? God came with no resounding trumpet. He came with no army, no great parade. He came not to a great or a prosperous people in a great or a well-known town. We might expect if God were to come into our midst, He would come with great pomp and circumstance, right? It might be what we would assume or think. But Jesus came to the nobodies. And in the words of another old hymn, I've been using a lot of hymns to illustrate things the last couple of weeks. I just enjoy Christmas time and these hymns so much. But in the words of another old hymn, Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home was there found no room for thy holy nativity. Heaven's arches rang when the angels sang, proclaiming thy royal degree. But of lowly birth didst thou come to earth, and in great humility. The foxes found rest, and the birds their nests, in the shade of the forest tree. But thy couch was the sod, O thou Son of God, in the deserts of Galilee. It's a mysterious and wondrous thing, is it not, that God would come this way, so humbly, so vulnerable. Why? Why did God come this way? Well, it's a part of the mystery, right? But this hymn maybe, in the, in the refrain of this hymn, maybe he captures just a little bit of one reason why maybe Jesus would come. It says this, O come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there is room in my heart for thee. My heart shall rejoice, Lord Jesus, when thou comest and callest for me. The point of the nativity, and the reason I go into all this about the miraculous and how difficult it is and the paradoxes and all of that, is that the point of the nativity, of the nativity of Jesus' coming into the world as he did, is worship. To grant us the miracle of worship. That every heart would prepare him room. That God wants Mary's words of praise in this song not just to be Mary's words. God wants them to be your words of praise. God wants them to be your worship. And that is a miracle. All the miracles of Christmas are really all about the miracle of worship. That we sinful people, that we sinners who are estranged from God, broken and fallen, would find in God a greater treasure than in all of the earth. How can it be? How can it be? Another song, just listening to this morning by a more contemporary artist named Lauren Daigle says this, How can it be? is the name of the song. I am guilty, ashamed of what I've done. Oh, what I've become. These hands are dirty. I dare not lift them up to the Holy One. You plead my cause. You right my wrongs. You break my chains. You overcome. You gave your life to give me mine. You say that I am free. How can it be? That our souls would magnify the Lord and rejoice in God our Savior. That we would take joy in God and in God's ways over and above and beyond all things. That's a miracle. Look at the world. Look at us. It's a miracle for that to happen. And that's why Christ came as He did. Not that He would remain in the manger 
and that we would have you know these great experiences and traditions which we have at Christmas time. Those are all great and good. I got my tile on this morning, right? We've got the poinsettias out. It's all great. But that's not the goal. The goal is that Christ would be born in your heart. That we would worship just as Mary did. That's the goal. So allow yourself this morning to think a bit about worship. Okay, let's consider this together. Take a moment and just ponder. What, what are the things that make for worship? What sort of things need to be present as we encounter this mysterious um, thing called the incarnation or the nativity when Christ came to the world? What, what must we be? What must be present for us to really worship as we ought during this time of year or any time of year? Well, Mary's words, I think, in Luke 1 teach us a lot about genuine worship. And this morning I want to try and liken worship to a science project, okay? So maybe you kids that are in school and you are working on science projects or maybe everyone at some point has done a science project. I don't know if y'all had to do that back in school. I remember doing a few myself and uh, they were always messy and uh, never really got the kind of grades that I had, uh, had hoped for. But science projects are fun. And this morning I want to liken worship maybe to a chemical reaction. Think of maybe uh, you're familiar with the baking soda and vinegar volcanoes, right? And you put the, the baking soda in, maybe you do a little food coloring or some other things, and then the, the vinegar and up she goes and erupts, right? Well, these two compounds meet and an explosive reaction happens that's a lot of fun to watch. Well, worship in a way is similar. There's certain elements, right, that go into the pot, so to speak. And when they're all there, the result is worship. The result is this reaction in our hearts of worship. So I think we see these elements in Mary's prayer, and I want to take a quick look at just a few of them. And they're there in your outline, the ones that I saw uh, from her prayer anyways, and there may be more. And the first one is this, is that genuine worship cannot happen apart from contemplation. Reflection, meditation, whatever word you want to use. You've got to chew on things. You've got to think a little bit. One of the enemies of worship, I think, is busyness. This is my worst enemy, no, no doubt, in my own personal life. Being constantly occupied and distracted and on, the, and on the go. It thwarts and it impedes and gets in the way of worship. Notice from our passage here, Mary has given this some thought. You get the impression this happens, that the baby leaps and Elizabeth says this to Mary. And Mary's just overcome. And out of the overflow of her heart, she just praises God. She says, starting in verse 50, And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with His arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their th thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry. He's helped his servant Israel. He spoke to our fathers. And she goes on. Mary knows something about God, doesn't she? About what he's done. About who he is. Of his justice. Of his great love. Of his mercy and of his glory. So that's one ingredient to worship, right? If you don't know anything about God, you can't worship God, right? You've got to know some things. You've got to have some grist for the mill, so to speak, right? So genuine worship cannot happen apart from some sort of reflection or thought or contemplation. Okay, another thing about worship to think about this time of year as we are coming to this babe and hearing the story once again, that genuine worship cannot happen apart from a humble heart. Mary here 
does not think herself worthy of God's esteem or attention. Do you see that? Do you feel that in her prayer? She does not think herself to be rather exceptional or important. She does not feel entitled to God's love and grace. In verse 48 she says, He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. She said, Lord, I'm a, I'm a humble woman. In verse 52 she says that God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and, the, and exalted those of humble estate. That He's filled the hungry with good things. You, you get in a sense that she's speaking of herself. Mary's saying, I fit these qualifiers here. Well, the last three weeks we've been delivering food boxes here in town. And to those of you who gave to the, to the, put the food in the back there, we really appreciate that. Those who, who gave to our strawberry supper um, back in, I guess it was this summer, which we, that money went to help this ministry. Thank you for that. Those who came and packed boxes and delivered and all, all the stuff that went into the, to this ministry. Thank you. But the last three weeks we've been delivering, going to the homes and giving the, the food to the people. And we, we take Bibles and we, we pray with the people if they're open to that. Some of the responses would just instantly fill your heart and make it all worth it. Yesterday we delivered a turkey in a box to a woman who was disabled in her home. And when we came in and put the food in her icebox and set the box on her table... She just could not believe that we would come to her house. That we would take the time to show her such kindness. And joy was just evident on her face. She beamed with joy. A simple act of kindness. She was filled with joy. She was humble. Right? She did not think necessarily that she was entitled to this gift or that she deserved it or whatever. She felt God's grace and love. And maybe she saw and encountered in that moment somehow the Lord Jesus. Humility is a door to worship. Contrast that maybe with those who feel entitled. And sadly, we've encountered some of those in the last few weeks as well. Those who feel maybe that not only should the church give them stuff, but who complain that they don't get exactly what they want or who think that the church should do more for them. How dare we not give them anything and everything that they want, right when they want it. And sadly, there are some of those out there too, unfortunately, but not Mary. That's not a heart of worship. That's not a humble heart. Mary saw herself as an unworthy recipient of God's favor and blessing, and out of the overflow came worship. Another element to genuine worship is that genuine worship cannot happen apart from a willingness to let go of one's own plans. Right? You've got to have your plans loosely in your hands, whatever they are. Last week we talked about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist, if you all remember that, those of you all who are here, how he was willing to pass all glory onto Jesus, right? People were coming to John and saying, John, are you the one? Right? Are you this Messiah figure? What an amazing thought that someone would come to you with that kind of praise. They would confuse you for the Son of God. But what does John do? He says, no, it's not me. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie the Son of God, God's sandal. John was a humble man. And he was willing to pass all glory unto Jesus. And his existence, his very life, was to pave the way for the Lord Jesus. He was one whose voice was crying out in the wilderness, right? The text says, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. So he gladly chose second place in his ministry 
His life was at the service of Jesus Christ. And Mary, you get the sense that she views her life the same way. After the angelic visit in verse 38, which is before our text today, if you have your Bible open, verse 38, Mary simply says in response to all that God has been revealed to her, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What, what humility, right? Mary had her plans loosely in her hands. She was holding them very loosely. God, what you have for me is better. Mary's plan takes back seat and there's no objection. Mary doesn't say, well, I had really hoped to live in this neighborhood or our five-year plan was such and such. She doesn't tell God that they're not a ministry family. We didn't really intend on raising a rabbi or whatever. Right? She doesn't go into that. Just like Abraham, who she mentions in verse 55. And the fact that she mentions Abraham is not coincidence, I don't think. Think of Abraham when God came to him. Where was he? Actually, it had been Abram at the time. Back in Genesis 12, he's, God came and said this to Abram. He said, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Abram at the time had no idea where God was going to lead him, right? No idea. He was holding his plans loosely, right? But he knew and somehow believed in God and he trusted God. And we get the sense that that's where Mary's heart is here too. Lord, I'm at your service. So a genuine heart of worship has to be flexible in our, with our plans and with our lives. Another element of genuine worship is that it cannot happen apart from a firm belief that God is more satisfying than the world. This is one of the key ones. They're all key, I think, but you really get the sense here, do you not, from Mary's prayer that she is happy in God. She is content in the Lord. Mary's very first words in her prayer in verses 46 and 47 reveal, I think, the heart and the soul of authentic worship, which is what we're trying to do this time of year, right? During Advent is to worship God. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Her spirit rejoices in God. Her spirit treasures God. That's where she starts. Yes, of course. The other things that are listed there, if you read the list, are great. And she's rejoicing in those as well. She's, you know, God has shown Israel favor. He's shown me favor. He's delivered us from our enemies. He's thwarted the purposes of the wise and the arrogant. And he's lifted up and exalted the humble, right? She's praising God for all those things as well. But she starts with God. She knows that God is the fountain from which all of those other blessings flow. She knows that apart from God, maybe those blessings are empty and hollow. Why? Why is it this way? Why is this a part of authentic worship? Why is... Why does God have to be at the center, so to speak? You know, these are the kind of questions I ponder. I don't know if you ever wrestle these questions. Why did God do it this way? Why must we? Why, why must God be at the center for us to really be worshiping rightly? Well, because we're made to worship God, really. I think that's that's the the point that we are to take. Maybe ultimately from all the the whole picture of Scripture is that God put us here for this purpose to worship. God. In all of life, we see glimpses of God here and there, do we not? Maybe we see a glimpse of God in the world around us in a sunset or in a waterfall or in the stars or maybe in the galaxies. 
Right? I mean, Miss Kathy, the things that she said here in our children's message, that's a glimpse of God, is it not? <laughs> this amazing process of, of childbirth. Maybe in a beautiful field of flowers. Maybe when your children were born. I had a friend that came to the Lord through that process of in the, watching his child be brought into the world. He was so overcome with the, the mystery, the majesty, the beauty of this, of this process. We see God in many joys in life, do we? Do we not? In food, in company, in fellowship, in sexual intimacy maybe, in music, all these places we see God. But instead of worshiping God, we fall into worshiping those things, do we not? We worship the things, the gifts, and not the giver. We do not magnify God, but rather the creation, the gifts over the Creator. Paul says this in Romans 1. I won't read the whole thing as I wrap up here. But he says this, For what can be known about God is plain to all men, to them, he says, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen and perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That's what I just said, right? All throughout the world, God's eternal attributes, his invisible qualities, divine nature, all that stuff, have been seen in the world around us. But then he goes on. So they are without excuse. All of us are without excuse because we see God in the world. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to God, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish, foolish hearts were dark, darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You hear that word exchange? We exchange. We said we'd rather have the creation rather than the Creator. The gift over the giver. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what we've all done, right? So we see God around us, but we worship. It's, it's the, the mailman and the mail analogy, right? Y'all have heard that one a thousand times, I'm sure. Right? You fall in love with the mailman when the message comes to you. And not the person who sent the message. And that's the way we are with the world around us. God is speaking to us through one another and through the world. And we fall in love with the world. And not with the one who is speaking to us and wooing us. The greatest miracle of Christmas. And this is the big point I want you to hear. The greatest miracle of Christmas. And I hope you sense this and feel this in your heart today. This is what touched me about Mary's prayer here. Is that all of that can be undone. All of this stuff can be undone. It's not that God... um, Our exchanging, I guess, what I'm speaking of. What can be undone is the, the, the exchange that we've made for the glory of God. Exchanging the world for the glory of God. That can be undone. And it's not the greatest thing about the Christmas story is not that God can overthrow evil rulers or that He can thwart the thoughts of, of the arrogant. It's not that He can show favor to the poor or the afflicted. Those are excellent and beautiful and wonderful truths and things that God can and does do. But the biggest miracle of the Christmas story, what's big for you and to walk away with this, this morning, and I hope you walk away with this Advent season, is that Mary's prayer can be your prayer. That's the big miracle. The greatest miracle of Christmas is that Christ, this Christ child, can be born in your heart. 
It's not a distant historical event that has nothing to do with you or me. Christ can be born in your heart. You can worship Him as Mary did. That this babe in a manger who grew up to be the Savior of the world can come into your life and overthrow the impulses of your heart. Maybe you're bored with what I'm saying right now. Maybe you're distracted. Maybe you're thinking about the ham you got at home or the football game or whatever else. And those are the things that you worship over God. Right? I used to be there. God knows I sat in church for years and said, whatever he's talking about. I did that. Maybe that's what you're doing right now. I don't know what's going on inside of you. But the beauty of the Christmas story, the miracle, is that God can change that. Because you know that's not a good thing, right? Why is it that we would value something so insignificant? It's all going to burn, right? All this is going to burn and go away. Why would we put everything in these things and neglect the eternity that's waiting for us on the other side? Our impulses are bad. Our hearts are inclined to sinful things, sadly. But the beauty of the Christmas story is God can undo that. Christ came to come into not just the world, but into your heart. Not only are we all in need of change, you and I both, something that I hope you really recognize and you feel this morning. God knows as I get up every morning and my children are pulling on me and I'm sitting here in the service and the kids are all over the place and I'm I'm just like, things that are running through my mind and my heart are, are not good. Right? I'm in need of change. We all are in need of God's change. So this Christ, this Christ child came for that purpose. To offer you a new heart and a new life. He can change it. doesn't matter what your struggle is, what your situation is. Where you find yourself this morning is irrelevant. Jesus is able and can overcome. He can give you a new life, a resurrected life, and turn Mary's prayer into your prayer. That is the miracle of Christmas. Hallelujah. Let's pray together.